Ready? Yep. Hi, and welcome to Thinking Baptist. This is Mariana, and over on the other side of the wall is Sam. Hey, Sam. Hey, Mariana. How's it going? <laughs> I'm great. How are you? I just think, I know that you say that this is better when we're not in the same room, but it does feel a little odd. It's it's like uh, the old trick in the news business when you have reporters in the same room, but they want to make it look like one is remote or in a different studio. So they'll kind of separate them even though they're in the same space. What? I didn't know this occurred. They put them in front of a green screen? Yeah, this was a big thing back in the mid-90s, especially like on cable news. Um, like MSNBC was famous for this as, as they were first starting back in, gosh, was it 1996, 1997? Uh, they would... They would put them, yeah, in front of a green screen or either just a different background. So, you oh, know, this... sometimes you have like the, the American flag background and sometimes you have this background or that background. So uh, they'll be across the room for, from each other. And with the miracle of things like, uh, you know, sensitive mics and, and the ability to do, um, like, I, I mean, I can zero out your background, too. So even if, you know, there was someone mowing the grass outside, it, it, we'd be able to, to zero that out and you wouldn't hear that. Huh. Yeah. So this uh, is very enlightening because it, it's that was part of the Colbert Report for so much, for so long. Yeah, right, and right, right. Told, we, uh, live, live on uh, or uh, the Daily Show. Yeah, right with Samantha B. Live from uh, the White House, and and she was you know literally standing across the stage in front of a green screen. But, <laughs> but that's how uh, cable news operates, and still does. But um, you know, especially when they have like the four boxes. You know, yes. with the four oh, talking heads. Oh, yeah. They're really in the same studio? Yeah. What? They've got the same room. Yeah. Oh, yeah. my brain is hurting already. So basically, I've shattered the illusion of us being in two separate places. <laughs> well, and, but that's what Colbert and, and uh, uh, John Stewart were making fun of. Right. So we're doing this on purpose. Yeah. Well, absolutely. Uh, well, it's an audio show. And if we're sitting there looking at each other talking, that's a different dynamic. Um, and so, so to help the listener, I think, even though, you know, the conversation is between us. But to help the listener, I, I think me staring out the window at a tree is, is much more beneficial than me looking at you and, and giving you visual cues and you giving me visual cues and, you know, and us having that kind of like side conversation. Well, and, and that's I play fun. with this uh, Spider-Man yo-yo. Exactly. I'm, right. And I'm watching uh, <laughs> Rick and Morty in the background. Uh, uh, and that's, you know, yeah. there, there's something fun about the idea of having uh you know kind of a face-to-face conversation and then people hearing that later but because of this being a sort of an intentional audio format like i think this benefits the listener more well also we should mention that i have we've had uh some discussions about the fact that i don't when we're having a conversation like around the dinner table i don't often make extended eye contact because it makes me uncomfortable and it makes you think that i'm not listening well, you're not listening, especially if you have <laughs> any kind of a screen in front of you, be it a phone okay, or an yes, iPad or a TV. True. So we we spouses of Unilis like to make fun of uh, the fact that if there's a TV on or any type of entertainment device anywhere near you all, like whether it's your dad or you or your brothers or your sister, like you can't talk. <laughs> it's hilarious to watch because even if we've seen it a hundred times, because yeah, yeah, Christmas up, is we like, just, wait, wait, we yeah, we yeah. weren't allowed to watch TV all that much. And so when it was on, I guess we were just so intently focused on it and it's carried over into adulthood. And so, yes, our spouses have talked to each other about this phenomenon. 
I will literally take my hand and wave it in front of you. If we, you know, sometimes we'll we'll take our dinner and go sit in front of the TV and watch Top Chef or something. And you have to press pause if you really want to. Yeah, make and it. I'm like, hey, so I really need to talk to you about the checkbook. Uh, it's 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 hilarious. Um, but because I I grew up with the TV was always on, and when I was in high school, even I had a TV in my bedroom, and I would just leave it on all night. Oh no! See, this is a big no no. Yes, and actually we've had this discussion since we've gotten married about this. Yeah, because I'll come in sometimes at like 3 in the morning and I think you're asleep and I'll, you know, I'll just watch an Anthony Bourdain, you know. And I'll wake up. I'll alert. Sometimes, sometimes. Typically after I fall asleep after 10 minutes of watching it. And then I'm like, what are you, why do you have this on? So (laughs) So the other other night I thought, well, I'll get into bed and turn my iPad on and, and watch it on the iPad. And then that way, if I fall asleep, I can just turn off the iPad. And, so I'll wake up, you know, 20 minutes later and the iPad's like being cuddled by the dogs at the foot of the bed. And I'm like, how did I? <laughs> and it was still playing. So anyway, don't, don't sleep with your iPad. N- nothing good can come of that. Hey, no, so because, oh, well, anyways, how do you take notes? Like, I, I know sometimes you carry around like a big moleskin, moleskinny uh, notebook. And I see you taking what? notes, but how do you take notes? Like, do you, do you do digital notes? Oh, what are we talking about? And uh, sermon prep and work? Just anything. I mean, just, you know, note taking. Yeah, so when I was in seminary, I definitely took Evernote. I mean, I used Evernote no- notebooks all the time. I had one notebook for each class, which actually has served me very well because I can go as I'm doing sermon prep and I can just search for Ephesians 2 and da-da, there's all my notes that I've taken from that Ephesians intensive that I took. So that's, I mean, that was really convenient because otherwise if I had taken paper and pencil or paper and pen notes, I would have had to flip through. And now that that's, you know, got three kids, it's, it's, quicker to just do a search bar in your Evernote. Yeah. No, no, I, I do the same thing. And, and I use Evernote still, but, you know, Evernote's going through this transition period and they just raise their prices. And I went ahead and subscribed for another year and actually gifted a subscription to a couple of friends who were complaining about it because I know they also used it. But, um, I mean, Thomas, uh, from Thinking Religion and, and I always talk about Evernote and our struggles and whatever with it. But I, I didn't realize you had used it that much in seminary as well. So that's... That's what, but you don't, you don't really use it now there, right? No, I really don't use it all that much. I mean, so if I'm working on a uh, – here's the other thing. So when I do like freelance editing for Harrelson Press, I do a lot of track changes. And so my notes are on the document that I'm editing. Or I'm working on a Google Doc with someone and we're passing notes back and forth via that document. So a lot of that is digital, but it's digital in a different format. All right. So if you – so do you ever have the – the the point where like you're taking notes about research or, or something like that and you know or or about a client pitch that you're going to do and that's all in my journal so you write that down i write that down yeah hmm. and, there's something about the physical act of writing it down that actually uh i don't know starts the creativity in my brain and i'll go back so i do this um what's it called everyday journaling idea where you, you know, you put a date and you say what, it's almost like a day planner, but you put what you've done that day and then you follow up back. And so I have a list. I taught of, you that. You taught me that, yes, but it also comes from my years teaching writing as well. You teach kids uh-huh. this. Sure. 
So if they are having trouble writing, you tell them at first, just write about your day. And then the next day, if they're having trouble, go read what you wrote yesterday and put some notes in the margin. And so this is a, a journaling. Yeah, but you can do that digitally. You can. I don't. That's interesting. Hmm. Because, you know, I've been using this iPad as my kind of primary computer. Even though- I will say when I had an iPad, I used the Notes app on the iPad. All- yeah, that's what I was, was going to ask. So Notes, they've really beefed it up lately. Yeah. And I, I have the iPad Pro, so I've got the pencil and I can do the handwriting stuff, which I really enjoy. And Evernote is still kind of janky with the Evernote, I mean, with the uh, pencil and with the handwriting. Um, no, if I had that capability where I could handwrite it and it would go to digital, I probably would use that all the time. Really? Yeah. Yeah, so a lot of people are exporting all of their Evernote stuff into Apple Notes, which to me, is, it's like, oh, you know, it's either yeah, the frying pan to the fire. <laughs> yeah, and I'll say also I've had some problems with the syncing of Apple Notes. And so when you do, um, I can't remember what I updated to, iOS 8 or something like that, but it duplicated all my notes. And so I had 999 notes or something, but I had 99 copies of one note. Ooh. I don't I don't know what happened with the sync that made it repeat so often, but I stopped that's when I stopped using notes, honestly. Yeah, yeah, that's that's no fun. But the new version of notes is really good. And so I was just wondering from, you know, someone who does sermon prep and also someone who, you know, works with books and authors and that kind of stuff all day, like if you had any kind of a, a digital workflow that, that you used. Because I I think, you know, people listening to us are constantly taking notes and constantly you know, whether they're uh, counselors or whether they're chaplains or whether they're pastors or just people listening, like, you know, it's one of those things you do. And I just wonder how many people depend on something like the the notes app to. Yeah, that's an interesting concept because, you know, the other thing that I do to keep track of articles that I really want to keep track of is I blog. A lot of my blogs have embedded links of articles I want to keep. And so I'm writing a reflection and I'm writing about what I'm thinking after I've read a series of four or five articles on the same thing, and then I'm embedding those links into my blog post, and it creates a digital breadcrumb trail of these articles that I want to keep track of. Yeah. So if I remember what subject I was writing about, I can go back and I can read those articles, and I've done that numerous times. Well, I use a, a service called Pinboard for that. I've tried that. It does not work for me. Really? Yeah. That's interesting because, you know, you can, you can hook it up. So I'm back on the iPhone and iOS stuff now, but you can, uh, you know, if someone sends you an email, even you can quickly just ship that off to Pinboard and then tag it, and you're, you know, takes ten seconds, and then, you know, later in the day I can get back to my Pinboard or later in the week or whatever, and like like with uh, like thinking religion, you know, we we typically have like fifty links or something. I mean, we have a huge list that we get through every week. We spend the first hour of the show that we don't record just <laughs> going through those links and saying, do we want to talk about this or this or this? Um, when I'm working with a client, you know, that kind of stuff, I'll, I'll, I'll link things and, uh, and and just use them as, a, as you know, a tag. Um, and then some of my links are public, so people can actually go in and see if they want to see what I'm bookmarking, basically, you know, to go back to later for, like, thinking religion. Uh, client stuff I make private, of course. But it, it's interesting to... Um, to think about how, how people do that. So so you just put it all up there on, on your blog then? Well, not all of it. And, and I will say that my journal that I, I do my daily journaling in is stuff I don't want published. <laughs> okay, so so 
Yeah, that's what I was kind of asking. Like, if stream of consciousness for me, right? So, if you see like a website or or an app or something that is going to benefit an author or a client, or your sermon, you know, later, like a week or two, or you say like, oh, that would be good for Pentecost next year, you put that in your journal. No. Okay. Put that in my head, or I email myself. <laughs> you can't put that in your head. I the can, point is actually. to get things out of your head. Ah, uh, inbox zero, man. Yeah, you want to take all that stuff and just dump it, put it somewhere. Put, put your stuff in a box and put your head, and I want to ruminate on it, and then I want to decide what to do with it. No, you want to put that stuff in a box and put it in the box museum, and and you know when when you get to that point where you need to look up something in the box museum, you can just walk into the box mu- museum and it's all labeled and and appropriately uh, tagged. Yes, Mister OCD, this works for you. That I'm doesn't work for us. <laughs> I'm I'm trying to mansplain this to you. <laughs> But I will say I do like this um, Dropbox paper that you've introduced me to. It's you know, it's interesting. So they they bought a uh, an app. Um, was it JotNote or WhatPad? There, there was a, a separate app that Dropbox bought in their buying spree about two years ago, and they haven't really done anything with it. And you can't actually take Dropbox paper notes, I guess, and sync them up to anything in Dropbox. I mean, right. you, can, you can like import it's, Dropbox yeah. stuff, right? But yeah, but you can't like put it in a Dropbox folder and share with with someone. So a lot of times when I'm working with a client and with a contractor, or say we're doing a TV spot, or say we're doing a website or something, and we've got a lot of images and video, you know, some people share like you today. You shared some client stuff with me on on Google Drive, so I took that and I, I copied it over to the my Dropbox file because that's where all my work stuff lives. And I love Google Drive, but for me, like Dropbox is just works better. And, you know, oftentimes I'll take that and share it with a client or share it with, a, you know, a contractor or, you know, whatever. And that's kind of where we do our stuff. Um, you can't do that with paper. Whereas like Google Drive, you, you can take a Google Doc and throw it into a folder and then share that folder. And that, you know, whoever you share it with gets to see that doc that you created. So I, I don't know what their long-term strategy is. And it's kind of frustrating to, uh, have to deal with it because it's kind of like this island within <laughs> within Dropbox. It's not really doing anything, you know. I mean, it's nice. I love it, and you can throw gifts on there, like like we have one here in our show notes, or you know, you can put MP3s, you can put code. I mean, it, it's very nice, and it it does what it does. Um, but I, I think we I started using this because Thomas didn't like Google Drive or Google Docs. Um, I think it's cleaner than Google Docs, but and I think this is really good for like one time projects. But yeah, it's not right, good right, for ongoing right. stuff. No, 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 right. So you, you wouldn't want to write a, a book in this or, or no. an essay, right? But but it is good for, you know, throwing in some links. And they just made it so now you can put things in folders. So we have Thinking Baptist show notes and Thinking Religion show notes and Thinking Out Loud show notes. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of worried about how that's going to work long term, you know, if they're going to really dedicate developers and that kind of stuff to it. We'll see. Yeah, it should be interesting. I mean... I I would not use this as my notebook. (laughs) Well, okay, so here's the other thing is that for Google and Google Drive, I have all of my sermons in Google Drive. And now I'm to the point that I'm like, hmm, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. Mainly because, number one, I put it not... I put all of those sermons not in the Google Drive that I have unlimited space in, but the Google Drive that <laughs> the, I have. The three that we have that have unlimited space, you mean? You know, like the first Gmail account I got after college. And so my space is done in there. 
And I had this nice neat folder that I started that said sermons, but good gracious when I, I mean, let's see, I've been preaching for three and a half years. How many Sundays is that? Yeah, but so like taking five Sunday, you know, five to six Sundays off. I mean, there's a couple of ways to get around that. You could share that folder with like your Mariana.net thing. Right. But you didn't let me finish. See, I didn't, I stopped at some point putting the sermons into that sermon folder. Oh, so they're just all out there. <laughs> it's just the beginning. And so not only do I need to go in there and share that folder of sermons with the unlimited account, but I also need to go in and organize, that's the term they use in Google Drive now, that into the folder. Well, so, yeah, uh, you, so you could just take everything and share that with your marionette.net thing that has unlimited. Like just Okay, know, sure, but all. that just means I'm going to have to reorganize it in that at some point. Yeah, not really. I mean, that's kind of the neat thing about Google Drive is you don't have to organize. You can just kind of search for things as you go through. But that, that's what I like about Evernote for me is that you can – I don't know if you can do this in Apple Notes. You can search for items within a doc or, or a PDF. Yeah. So like if you're searching yeah. for Ephesians and you mention Ephesians in a sermon, like – you know, boom, that pops up, and it's like, oh, that's that's nice. Like, I don't you know, have to what I started those. to use this with is um, like personal stories that I used in my sermon. I would search for a key phrase to see if I had used it already. Oh, really? Yeah, for illustrations. Well, as well as to determine in the lectionary whether I'd already preached on the passage before. <laughs> well, yeah, could you forget? Yeah, you get to a certain point and, you know, you're eight months pregnant and you're like, I don't even know what's going on. Is it Sunday yet? Right, right. That's really but interesting. So, so Google Drive has been really good for me for that because I didn't get into the habit, as some preachers have, of handwriting their sermons out or typing it into Microsoft Word where you can't search through all of Word. I mean, you can if you know the document's name, but you really can't for the content. And, and the search isn't as good as the Google Drive. I don't know how people handwrite sermons. I know this will workflow, but they take the pen in their in their hand, <laughs> and they put the pen to the paper. I don't know how people can handwrite sermons, and you know, like like for me, I, I, sometimes I'll handwrite documents. You know, not not often, but sometimes I will, and then I'll put them in. I'll See, type I them out. Those, I jot those notes in my journal, though. I mean that, but there's something about having an archive of that that's in paper. That's really important to me. So I finished my moleskin. Oh, when was it? In April, I think. My moleskin that I had bought for this photography class that I took at Furman. That God, I it took you that long to do a moleskin? It took me that long to do a moleskin. So it has pastor schools. It has my photography notes. It has a, such a weird conglomeration of my life in there. It has the Festival of Homiletics that I went to in Nashville. Because I had so many other journals that I was using in addition to that. So for me, it's it's almost like a scrapbook of my life. And so I want to create that kind of paper trail of my life in that way, you know, even though that was seriously hodgepodge. <laughs> because I was using Evernote and different things in classes, so I wasn't always using that moleskin. Yeah. I mean, you've seen my collection of notebooks. That's what I'm saying. There's some things that you put in paper on purpose. Yeah. And I, I mean, I carry one today. I carry field notes because they're a little smaller and they fit into my but I wonder, man purse. I mean, but when we were cleaning out my grandfather's house after he passed away, we found notes and notes of those one subject 
um, binders, mm-hmm. not binders, but that my grandmother took copious notes of my grandfather's preaching. And this is what she would say. He would be preaching not at like his regular First Baptist Lawrence or Martha Franks where he spent the most time, but he would be going somewhere, you know, somewhere in South Carolina or maybe somewhere else visiting. And he would say, what did I preach on last time I was there? And she would go back through all her journals and remind him what sermon he had preached so he doesn't didn't preach the same one again. <laughs> and nice. so we found in their closet, I mean, stacks. It was four or five stacks, and it had to be over 50 notebooks in each one. Well, and what did those go? Like, did someone go through those and digitize them? or No, not digitize them. I mean, uh, my parents' house, you know. <laughs> in the basement but at the same time i wonder you know what if google drive just disappears at some point like all of my sermons are going to be gone no but i mean the notebooks are much more likely to be burned or get coffee spilled on them or just you know fall away as detritus to history you know i okay so I, uh. you know i argue about this on on two fronts so number one Yes, I love paper. I keep paper notebooks. I've got 20-something paper notebooks going back 10 years. Also, you have a very um, good discipline of writing handwritten notes to people. I I have – I'm looking at my two folders right here. I have correspondence 2016-1, correspondence 2016-2. Yeah, I mean I write – Especially to our daughters in Asheville. Yeah, I write write three letters a week to people I care about. And typically I get them back, you know, like letters back. And I've I've gotten a whole bunch of – letters this year and i've been doing that for a while i mean i've got my 2015 folder back there too um and it's you know it's fun to do you just you know i I like to break out my fountain pen and be all you know steampunky and and write a letter and and send it off it takes 10 minutes to write three of these and just you know the, the joy that that brings random people getting a letter and it's like oh that's cool um, and typically I'll get one back and, and we start kind of an ongoing conversation. And it, yes, I think that's important because, uh, go back and try to open something off of a zip disc right. 15 years ago, 20 years ago. <laughs> or, I can give you my, my floppy disc drive. Floppy disc. That was a USB, um, that I specifically ordered with my Dell laptop when I went to Fairman cause I was certain that I was going to need those floppy discs that yeah. I had from high school. Yeah, I mean, you know, not uh, floppy. Or are you talking about five inch or three and a half? Three and a half. Or three and a quarter, whatever it is. Or are you, you know, uh, but did, it didn't did you put the hole in it so you could write my it laptop. Right. right. I had to buy that external device separately. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I because remember. I had a CD drive and that was, whoa, CD drive. And everything I had to do to turn in for lesson plans that had video on it or audio on it had to be on a CD yeah. or a DVD. And it couldn't be on a three. And that was just like, oh, my gosh, how am I going to be a teacher in this day and age? And give, give uh, you know, a 25-year-old a DVD now. And, you know, what do you do with that? I was going to say, <laughs> we, have, we have in our daughter's room over here, you know, the big old stack of 100 DVDs, rewritable DVDs. Yeah, which, which you know, which, back in the day we would have killed for. Yeah, because you, I mean, they were like $34. Yep, exactly. Um, they had the cases, the multicolored cases that you would buy. <laughs> right. It's like, here's my data. Here's my music. I'm going to put pictures on this one. Yes. I'm going to back up on this back one. Up, that's right. And I would make um, mixed CDs for when we were going down to the beach and stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I'm of one mind on that. And I say, yes, you know, definitely you should leave a paper trail because paper, it, you know, yeah. uh, for the most part, 
it, you're, you're not going to run out of a format. Like I can pick up a paper from 2000 years ago. And if I know how to read the language, I can read that piece of paper. Um, but the likelihood of it being lost is much higher than something like, you know, on, or on destroyed. A Google, lost or destroyed. Lost or destroyed on a Google doc, Google drive, mostly lost, but you know, perhaps destroyed. Um, but okay. It, you say that, but what happened to my writing that I did on my parents' first computer? The Microsoft that had the the right the word processor that was the blue screen, uh, like a Corel or something. No, WordStar. No, uh, was it? I don't know. But yeah, so that's what I'm saying. So we're kind of in the middle of this digital dark age because we have all these proprietary formats. Where there's, I mean, Dropbox paper is not going to be around in, in 100 years. You know, all these notes that we create here are, are not going to be around. I'm okay with that. It's kind of like Snapchat. You know, like, I'll, I'll send a silly picture to Thomas. I'm okay. It's not going to be here 100 years from now. My iCloud photo library, eh, I kind of want that to be around, you know? So you and I will print out pictures at Walgreens every now and then. And put them into our child's baby book that's a journal. <laughs> Which hopefully doesn't, you know, get burned when the end times come. But, you know, we'll, we'll keep that. Um you know, it's th- things like our insurance cards. Like, yeah, I'll print those out. Like, I don't, we don't get those mailed to us anymore. But sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll put them in Dropbox and and I'll send them to you. And I'll say, hey, you know, if you get stopped, make sure you have these on you, whatever format you you prefer. Or if um, you get stopped, I mean, it doesn't have to be me. I, I don't ever get stopped. stopped. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not the one that runs into the back of service vehicles. That was one time. That one. Time. <sighs> oh. Um, you know, so so this idea of of permanence is really tricky in 2016 because we're kind of using a, a, all these different digital formats in rapid succession that are not going to be here. Things like MP3s are not going to be around in 100 years. Right. But, so but conical is... cylinders that Thomas Edison was using are around and we can still hear music, you know, uh, vinyl or whatever. We can hear, still hear that music from 120 years ago. I don't think MP, MP3s are going to make it. So we're going to be like this dark age and, archaeologists and, and anthropologists are going to look back at us and say, what, what do these people produce? Like, all of this stuff is gone. And all these records on our, on our iPhones and our, our you know, Android devices are all going to just go poof into the digital ether. But while we're here, um, maybe, you know, for me, it's like, okay, I can export all this stuff out of Evernote and I could print it out and put it into a big binder. So, like, if I have all my research and writings and all kind of stuff that I want or, or things like this show. Like I want my kids. I mean, part of the reason I, I like podcast is because I want my kids, my kids, kids in some vain thing to be able to hear me, you know, cause I don't know how long I'm going to be on this earth. So the idea of someone being able to interact in the theater of the mind is really powerful to me. Um, so keeping these MP3s is really important and that's why I keep them on a, on our own server, and we don't use like SoundCloud or any of that stuff, because I I keep multiple backups of all this because I think it's really really important. Um, but is it it is but, interesting when you think about it? I mean, because I can remember in seminary learning about a little bit about the culture around these communities of faith that rose up in in light of Jesus's death. And I can remember everybody said, oh, they were an oral culture. You know, a lot of this 
the letters that they sent back and forth were read before a community and then they were on wax tablets. And so those were scraped and reused because those were seriously expensive. And I can remember kind of being fascinated and also fixated on, I want to know what was said in those communities of faith. What were those oral traditions? And was it really the Philippians hymn in, in Philippians 2? Was that really used in worship? Because if so, we should be using that in worship now. And what other things were in worship that we could continue using in worship now, you know, 2,000 years later. But that was fascinating to me. But then the more you fixate it, the more you understand that you can't recreate that community. Right. You can't be a New Testament church. Yes. And that's what so many churches are advertising themselves as, is that there's something also really powerful and mystical about creating something that can't be recreated, that has to be in the moment. Yeah, I mean, uh, so it's that balance back and forth of, okay, I want to pass this on or, hey, I don't want to go to Panera and be on FaceTime with a random person I don't know walking in the background with my kid ordering my coffee. With a random person you don't know, what do you mean? People sit in Panera and they FaceTime people. And you can see yourself walking across their screen uh, well, in the background. <laughs> well, like, you're in I public. Think, yeah. You're, I, you're in a public place. But that public place is now shared through FaceTime and different devices and Snapchat and different things with an audience that you don't know you're being shared with. Yeah, but you're in public. It's part of the fun. Yes, but being in public now means being in public not only physically, but also digitally. Which is the same thing. It's all photons and you know, electrons. <laughs> Just light reflecting off of things. But I think this is something that a lot of people are having trouble with, especially um you know, or the fact that I, you know, I'll FaceTime like my dad in the morning and he'll be at Bible study or something and I'll be feeding Ben his oatmeal or something, you know, and suddenly somebody else is walking across and I'm like, oh, well, hey, good to see you. I didn't mean to FaceTime you. I meant to FaceTime my dad. Yeah, yeah, I know. And, and, you know, especially as we move more and more towards live video and, and FaceTiming and Facebook Live. Yeah, all this. Well, and Google's coming out with Duo, like their FaceTime alternative. And, you know, it, it's much more common now to do that. And, you know, we're, we're getting rapidly to that Star Trek kind of conception of the future where we just message each, each other on our devices or our iPads. And, and it's funny, in Star Trek, The Next Generation, they had these tablets that were very much like iPads. This is a great picture of uh, or scene with John Luke Picard, Captain, has uh, all these iPads kind of scattered on his desk. And he's kind of answering things on this one, and he moves to this one because it's got this stuff on it. Like, And you know, I remember thinking in the 90s when I saw that, I think that was from one of the movies, I remember thinking like, oh, what, why doesn't he just consolidate that into one of those tablets? Um, and now here I am sitting with my iPad Pro that is definitely kind of a, uh, a a relative of that. But, I mean, I, yeah, but that's public. I, I think the the bigger kind of thing, especially for churches or, or just for communities of faith, is how how do you interact with the public? You know, not just, I don't want to be in the public when I'm at Panera and someone's FaceTiming, but if you're a church, how are you presenting yourself to the public? If that makes sense, because I, you know, we, oh, yeah. I work with a lot of churches on websites and social media, and 
you know, marketing in general. And a lot of times it takes more education for those kind of like, you know, the quote website committee or the technology committee that I have to meet with over and over again uh, to, to sort of say like, this is not 1980 and we're not going to print out handouts that you're going to take door to door anymore. Like that's not going to work if you want your church to grow. I mean, yes, that could work theoretically in some communities. I'm not saying it can't. I'm saying if you want to look at the trends and you want to look at, if you want to hire a marketing agency to, to tell you, this isn't really going to be the best route for your resources. This isn't going to be the best route. <laughs> That's for not going to be the best route. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, uh, but everyone thinks that their opinion is the best, whether it's web design or whether it's, you know, how we should do outreach for our church. And oftentimes it's not the general congregation that has a bigger hang up with it. It's the people that kind of self-select themselves to be on the technology committee or the website committee or the marketing committee or the outreach committee who think that they know how to put their church out there because they've seen a couple of Facebook posts or they've seen, uh, or they, they remember the good old days about how they used to, to do outreach. And I, I, I don't think those committees always accurate, ad, know, adequately represent uh, kind of the, the larger congregations and a lot of the churches that I've worked with and, I know a lot of my colleagues have worked with. Um, I don't know. I think that's kind of the bigger question is how to, you know, how do churches say like, no, we're not just a garden club. We're not just the Kiwanis club. We're not just, a, you know, the Salvation Army here. Like we're doing something else. And that's what, you know, here's what we're doing. And I, I think for me personally, the reason that we're seeing a lot of churches decline in, in numbers and membership and engagement, especially among young people or younger people or young professionals or whatever, is what's what's the point like why spend time investing yourself into a community that you can go to the junior league and get the exact same thing out of right and i think well i think another thing is that a lot of churches appoint people who are individual users on these social media venues and then they don't understand what it means to be a participant in the social media kind of world as a brand or as a company or as an organization and that's much different Yeah, I, and just the the way that all this, you know, is quote changing so fast, it's really not. But people feel like we're all, you know, hurtling towards some sort of uh, internet apocalypse or something. Um, well, I think people think that it's changing so fast because suddenly it matters. Right, exactly. You know, churches exactly. are declining, membership is declining, giving is declining. So suddenly, yes, it matters. Actually, your website matters. Whether you have online giving matters, whether you have a social media presence matters because people aren't just coming to church the way they used to come to church. They're not just giving to church with a, a check that you can depend on. You know, pledge drives aren't working anymore. And so people feel like everything's changing because they haven't kept up with this. Well, when you pass the plate, young people don't have cash in their pockets. Right. But... Yeah. That for a long time that didn't matter, right? But now it right. matters. But now it matters because that the the age group that you know could contribute to a large capital campaign to help you repave the parking lot is you know getting up there in age, and and if they're still coming, yes, they're probably writing you a good check every week, every month, every year, whatever. But it's not the same experience for a lot of 
oops, I just activated Siri somehow. It's not the same experience, not said experience, uh, for a lot of churches uh, in terms of that monetary flow as it was 10 years ago or, or 15 years ago. Well, another thing I think is churches are seeing some of the um, baby boomers die. And so they understand that, oh, my gosh, we don't have this missing demographic of 30 to 35-year-olds or 30 to 40-year-olds. So, you know, we've had 11 deaths in the last three months. If this rate keeps up, where is our church going to be in two years, five years, ten years? Yeah, I I don't know. It, it does make me wonder. I mean, when you when you look at the trends in Protestant Christianity, at least, I mean, a lot of churches I talk to, they say, well, we're, we're an older congregation. Our average age is 66. And, you know, we've got a pretty good group of 30-year-olds that come. We're trying to get more youth, more 20-year-olds to come. Uh, what do we need to do? And like your average age is 66. And, yeah, well, you know, what's the average age of, you know, a giver from this median point? About 75. And it's like, well, okay, well, <laughs> we, need to, we need to move that curve down a little bit. Um, but churches aren't, it, it, like you said, it didn't matter until it really hit the pocketbook and people started saying, well, we're going to have to close off that whole building right? Uh, because we're we, going to have to rope off some pews. Yeah. Because we don't have a nursery and we don't, we don't need this big building anymore. We can't afford the air conditioning on it. So don't go in there because it's going to be really hot. Um, you know, we built this kitchen. We don't know, don't really know what to do with it. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll figure something out. And it, it's like that type of rapid growth that churches saw in the seventies and eighties, you know, 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, is now kind of coming home to roost because, um, you know, it's not that things have changed because I was playing on the internet and making websites in the 1990s. But like you said, now things matter because it's hitting the pocketbook. Exactly. And, you know, churches are looking at long range plans and not being able to say to their finance committees who are businessmen how they're going to survive. So, um, so, okay, uh, so this brings me to the point that I kind of wanted to talk about. Yeah. Okay, so in the Baptist world, at least, you see a big movement towards rebranding. And, and one of the things that I've seen most recently is the idea of contemplative Baptist. Have you heard this? I have, I have. Yeah, contemplative worship. It is a contemplative worship, but they're calling themselves actually contemplative Baptists. And so they're integrating into their worship experience some of these spiritual disciplines like centering prayer, like um, Lectio Divina, all of these things. And I, I don't want to be cynical about it, but I'm kind of wondering if this is perhaps something that they're naming themselves or branding themselves as in order to set themselves apart from other Baptist churches. Yeah, I mean, it's increase membership. Well, <laughs> oh, and you can put a labyrinth in your church too, right? Like, like First Baptist Asheville has a you know new labyrinth. That's pretty cool. Yes, yeah. Um, but this is part of their contemplative Baptist kind of movement. Well, it, it's part of a larger scope. I mean, so you have people like Steve Harmon, you know, our friend up at Gardner Webb, who uh, is, is talking about Baptist ecumenical stuff and and working with the Orthodox Church and working with the Catholic Church and you know, can Baptist worship in a sort of a higher liturgical mode and what that looks like and, and whether that's healthier, you know, how that adds to Baptist polity and Baptist life, which I think is fascinating on a number of fronts. I, I don't have the the mental uh, abilities to hop into it like he has, but, you know, for someone who appreciates kind of, quote, higher church liturgy, I think it's it's 
wonderful and interesting to see that because you know Baptists have typically been associated with what we call lower church stuff, you know, and and not using all the smells and bells that say the Episcopal Church does. Um, but interesting. Oh, I was going to say like like. Tying that to something like the contemplative movement, uh, which is already a few years old. I mean, that was really big around like what 2010, 2012, that era. And I mean, it's still out there. And and, and some of the larger churches are now getting into it with, um, you know, kind of the the contemplative, uh, you know, late night services kind of a thing, like seven o'clock contemplative service. But even my my uh, Methodist college, uh, Wofford, uh, they redid the chapel in 2001, 2002, I believe, where we were married. And before, when I was at Wofford, that chapel was pews, and there was a rail at the front, and we did communion there every Tuesday. And now that chapel is kind of a a mixed-use space almost. You know, it's just kind of a big square box, and you can put the altar wherever you want, and you can put this in there, and uh, put the seats however you need them. And that whole thing was because of the new chaplain and how he wanted to express kind of this contemplative idea of, of you know, that space instead of, you know, the, the big kind of a church upstairs as it was because I was at the chapel. Um, so I, I think in some ways it goes back to the, the Baptist need for, I'm trying to figure out a nice way to say this. Typically, Baptists, historically, we've been very independent, and we've been very resistant to having something like mediated worship. You know, we have a pastor. Or even evening prayers, or Where, yeah. the Book of Common Prayer, or these kinds of things. Right. Uh, what's the, what's the uh, Methodist thing? Not e- Evening song? Eve song? What's yeah, the, evening song. Evening song, right. Or evening prayers, depends on where you are. Yeah, I was always fascinated by that. Um, anyway, so... In the Baptist world, we've been very resistant to having mediation between God and us, right? Every every person is a is a is a you know, every member is a pastor, every every you know believer is a priest, kind of a thing. So now it feels like there's this wanting within some Baptist groups of having not maybe a mediator, but just someone who goes against that unmediated experience and says, okay, well, I'm going to walk you through this contemplation method of spirituality. And you can do this after we do it once. You can go to the labyrinth by yourself, but you might need a guide to get to the labyrinth or let me help you out with some hints on what to do at the labyrinth or what to think of. And I mean, even in Baptist life, things like, our preachers and our pastors or our ministers, whatever we want to call them, have been very low-key. You know, it, it it's not a big bar to jump over to, to become a Baptist minister in some yeah. traditions, right? That's true. Yeah, the ordination council is, you know. I mean, it de- yeah, depending on where you are, kind of whatever. Compared to, <laughs> like, our friend Trinity, who just passed all of her ordination, um, what do you call it, for the Presbyterian Church? Yeah, for the PCUSA. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a major process. You and I got off easy, basically. <laughs> well, well. So, so this idea of needing or, or realizing, okay, we do need mediation because if we don't have mediation, then all of a sudden we have this wide range of kind of a cacophonous voice, and yes. the, the pastor may not be as um, 
not skilled or qualified. I'd, I'm trying not to tread on people's toes here in the Baptist world, but see what I'm saying? Like, I, I think the, the contemplative movement and these other movements to try to be, figure out, okay, what does it mean to be Baptist? Or especially what does it mean to be a cooperative Baptist? Or what does it mean to be in the Alliance of Baptists? Like these, these groups are trying to identify themselves over and apart from something like the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, there, there's a real emphasis right now on, on that identity portion based on that need, I think, for, for kind of mediation between God and, and human. Well, I think it's also a response to the cult of personality that arose in a lot of Southern Baptist churches and is still a part of a lot of Southern Baptist experience. So you have yeah, the majority and the core of the service being the sermon, which is 30 to 45 to 50 minutes long. Right. And so what you have, I think, is a response to that. And as we know in the CBF kind of world is that a lot of the CBF was was formed out of negation. We are not this. We are not this. And so not only in CBF worship do you have a leader and people litany that's printed in your bulletin. So the congregation is participating. So it's active participation instead of passive reception. But you also have four or five ministers who are on the platform so it's not just one minister who's receiving all of the, um, you know, kind of leading of the worship service. And so I can remember going to First Baptist Greenville when I was in college and people told me that it was, you know, a flagship Baptist church in Greenville. And so I went there and I remember the profession, the processional and the litany and these kinds of things. And I thought, this isn't Baptist because in the Baptist church, you have an opening him, you have an extended pastoral prayer that's at least 15 to 20 minutes. Then you have uh, special music and you have the offertory. And then you have the same pastor who's speaking again for the sermon. And so it's a pastor led experience in a lot of Southern Baptist traditions. And so this resurgence of some of the litany and the benediction and the, and the prelude and the call to worship and, and these different parts or even the prayers of the people where it's a guided prayer experience is meant to, I think, resurrect that every minister, every member is a minister by asking the congregation to participate. But it's interesting because it's asking the congregation to participate in this very scripted way. And so it is still minister led and it still is pastor led because, you know, the ministerial team are the ones who create the worship experience. So it's this kind of balancing act, I think. But I do think that in a lot of CBF churches that you will see a more guided worship experience, perhaps in response and to contradict the Southern Baptist tradition of having it be around this one person, this yeah. senior pastor. I think, it, I think it depends on where you go. I mean, I've been to a lot of CBF churches where it's all about the pastor, you know, in, in terms of the worship, you know, and, and maybe they'll have a soloist or something. But for the most part, it's like, oh, where do you go to church? Oh, I go to so and so Baptist. Oh, why do you go there? Because the preaching is really good. You know, and that's that's a marketing message that I think a lot of churches relied on for, I don't know, the last hundred and twenty or so years, but especially in the last few decades. I mean, that that's always been the thing in smaller communities, and in South Carolina, we're you know here we're dealing with smaller communities for the most part, um, because you know most of our big big. Baptist churches are, are not cooperative Baptists or whatever. But, but whether you're talking about Southern Baptist or cooperative, cooperative Baptist, I think when when someone says, 
hey, you should come to our church. The preaching's really good. We got a good community. We got a good Sunday school. The Sunday school teacher is awesome. You're going to love him. Uh, the preacher's amazing. You're going to love him. I mean, he he gives the great sermons. He he speaks in my heart every week. You're going to love it. You should come. Like that's the that's the message. It's not our worship really brings brings you closer to God. In my mind, and that's what I think of when I think of the Baptist Church, which is sad, but you know that's I think that's kind of the you know the, the cultural understanding of of Baptist marketing. Yeah, but I mean, also it's Baptist tradition, right? You don't have communion every week. You don't have some of these practices that our Anglican brothers and sisters, you know, that is something that's powerful. So, but but it's 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 frustrating to me because we talk about every member being a minister. And that works if if you have a very outwardly facing church where people go out and do a lot of community service type stuff. But when you talk about the worship experience and, and a lot of Baptist churches and, and many Baptist churches, CBF, SBC, Alliance, whatever, you have a pastor who hopefully can preach well. You might have a soloist who's really good. You might have a pianist who's really good. But those are individualistic things, you know, and I've heard people yeah. clap so many times in a worship service in a Baptist church, and I, I want to, it makes me want to pull my hair out, and I, I try to be gracious and don't pull my hair out, but this idea of worship being kind of a, a presentation of our talents and our, our dresses on Sunday morning um, and our eye makeup or our suits or, you know, whatever, it's like this... It's like a, a performance based on individual talent rather than a, a community of worshipers getting together to worship God, which I see in the Anglican Church, which I see in the Episcopal Church, which I see in the Lutheran Church and, and many Methodist churches and many PCUSA churches. You know, I see that kind of communal worship that I don't necessarily always feel like I'm getting in the Baptist Church. And I think a lot of Baptist ministers, especially in the CBF world, would say if they're on multi-staff you know, they're a minister on a multi-staff. The congregation expects that the ministers are going to be the ones who go out and lead the mission projects. You know, there is a really, it's really difficult to find volunteers from the congregation, even though the belief in the Baptist church is every member is a minister to lead up something. You know, there's a, there's a mindset, especially in, in larger congregations, we've hired a minister to take care of that. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in some cases, that's, you know, it's not every church, of course. I mean, we've been in churches where that's not the case. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I I can definitely see that, especially with, you know, kind of medium-sized to larger churches where you feel like, okay, well, I'm going every Sunday, and I'm going to Sunday school, and I'm, I'm writing a check. Like, what else do you want from me? You know, like, okay, I, I can't go help you out with your pancake supper, but I'll write a check for the pancakes. How, how much is it going to cost? Yeah, and so that's what we call program-sized churches, right? There's just too many. There are just too many programs for people to be involved in everything, and so you have these programs that ministers are running, but that you know people they're too many to choose from. Like, okay, wait, I can do Wednesday night supper, but and Sunday morning worship, but I can't do the six other things you have going on this week. Right. Yeah, and I think that's that's something and. From what I've read and what I've heard that the the future of the church, you know, these program sized churches are the ones that are going to feel really the the pinch in the next five to 10 years of this declining membership. So when we talk about things like contemplative practice, I, I think in some ways that's the attempt from churches to say to those types of people who are too busy to interact like, hey, I know you can't come help with the missions project or you can't come help 
uh, with, with the food drive or, or taking the food to the shut-ins, but you can come walk in the labyrinth, you know, just so you will feel connected. And, and we can walk you through how to do that and, and think about God and, and make it inward and about you, which I, I'm not knocking that. I mean, there's there's a place for kind of, you know, midday Sabbath or whatever you want to call it. And, and I, I appreciate prayer, right? I mean, you go yeah, right, to right. a Muslim country and you have the call that's issued. Five times a day, right? Right. Uh, to yeah, remind you of this. You've, you see my calendar. I've got time set aside for meditation every day. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. That, that's that, that line between individualism and corporate worship for me is really tricky in the Baptist world because I think but, we've gone over too far to one side. Yeah, and I think we've seen in the Baptist tradition, you see the Stations of the Cross and you see some of these other traditions that have been around for hundreds, maybe thousands of years that wouldn't traditionally be Baptist coming back into the Baptist tradition in a way that's um, welcomed. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's nice to see churches, you know, not just... (laughs) As Yeah, I was going to say, as opposed to me growing up where you tried to, if you would, if someone would integrate or try to integrate that into worship people oh my gosh we're turning catholic and we can't turn catholic yeah or something like that right don't change the color of the the, uh, carpet and oh my gosh no don't introduce you know something as you know revolutionary as as weekly uh communion because that would be bad (laughs) but but really the fear was that at least well, well, the Catholic Church was sitting right across the church where I grew up in, and I can remember my grandmother multiple times saying, well, as long as you're not dating a Catholic, we're okay. And I'm thinking, what? Yeah, I've, I'll tell you about some of those offline. But it's kind of like uh, Paula Clayton Dempsey's piece in Baptist News Global, um, you know, about kind of accepting women pastors in Baptist life and how, you know, how her journey took her on this crazy, uh, crazy path of... Um, you know, trying to be faithful to God or whatever, but it was, you know, lots of hard conversations and years and years of work by, you know, uh, Baptist in, in the early 90s and mid-90s to at least open the door for, for women pastors because all of a sudden it wasn't a white male at the front of the church. And, you know, what what is that going to say about our church if we have this, you know, woman or girl or lady preaching? Um, you know, it, it, it those types of gender identities and politics really do play with, with some people's heads in, in Baptist life. Yeah. And I think this is very similar to the, to the conversation that we're having about the LGBTQ community as well. Um, you know, that was something that was spoken about. That was a big emphasis at the general assembly at CBF this year. And then there was this article that came out about, um, urging caution about changing the CBF hiring policy. Is this the conversation we need to be having? Aren't there other things that we need to be doing? And then there was a backlash against that article about, wait, no, 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 you're just distracting the conversation because this isn't something you want to talk about. Um, So it's interesting because I think in the Baptist world, especially the Baptists who have integrated and not integrated in the sense of, you know, taken on these contemplative practice and those kinds of things, but have been more open to how they worship to, you know, trying some of these things and, and in their minds being flexible and welcoming of differences. And 
So how does that look with the gender issue with the LGBTQ community? And I think this is, this is something that I've talked to a lot of ministers and pastors about, okay, well, we're welcoming and affirming of women, but I, I don't know if we're ready to talk about the LGBTQ issue. So this is this is something also in the next, you know, five to ten years. That's the kind of window that everybody's saying for Baptist churches, but also for mainland Protestant churches, too, of, you know, what's going to happen? What's the future of the church? Yeah. The sky is falling. Well, you know, like I said, it, it goes back to that idea that, you know, things are changing. And uh, that the fuel, you know, not necessarily that that. It's actually the case, but that change doesn't hit home until all of a sudden you have gay people in your pews or you have a gay wedding at your church. Right. Or you have also, a transgendered person, you know, who wants to join the church. Since the 70s or 80s, when you, you know, you've had gay people in your pews, you just didn't know they well, were. Well, they couldn't say they were, right? But, right. <laughs> you know, it, it's. Just, talk about that. All right. So it's it's like when a Methodist person comes to your Baptist church and says, "Hey, I want to join," and you say, "Well, have you been baptized?" And they say, exactly. "Yeah, I was baptized oh, as a gosh, kid." I don't know. I don't. I don't know if we can accept that. Uh, if we let you in, we're gonna have to let all these other people in. So we're gonna need you to go get dunked. And you know, what if you're gay? Um, or if you come out as gay and you're inside of the congregation, um, you know, it's that feeling of, of no, no, this is how church should be, and. If you take this away, I'm not going to write this check because. Well, or if you're divorced. Right. I mean, I mean, this is these are not issues that have gone away because they weren't necessarily settled. And although every member is a minister, we haven't in larger Baptist congregations determined how we talk about these difficult conversations. In smaller Baptist churches, everybody just gets in a room together because everybody can fit into a room. But in larger congregations, how do you approach those difficult conversations? Do you point at an ad hoc committee to decide on behalf of the of the church? And then to, who gets selected for that ad hoc committee? And then how does that work? Does it go to a congregational vote after that? Because our congregational polity kind of makes it difficult to determine what is the plan of action in addressing some of these difficult conversations. And so I, I think a lot of times Baptist churches just don't talk about it. Well, I mean, it's a difficult conversation, and a lot of times, you know, the last thing you want to do is make someone on the inside feel uncomfortable. Right, but it, in the Methodist or PC USA or you know the Presbytery, you have a hierarchy, and you have a governing body that that handles some of these issues for you and and kind of passes it down. Sure, your congregation has to decide what they feel about it, and the ministers who are in those congregations are doing the pastoral care of that. You know, but it's different with the autonomy of the local church and how this gets discussed. Well, and, and that's kind of the, the responsibility that local churches have that I think some have, you know, tried to pass off as saying, well, you know, we're, we're thinking about it and we're working on it. We're, you know, we're just taking our time and we're being deliberative and we're trying to illuminate and shed some light on the issue rather than just, you know, having difficult conversations, you know, out in public because we, uh, we, we don't want to make people upset. Um, and, and to me, you know, that's, that's kind of the, the responsibility of Baptist churches. If we're going, if we're going to claim this congregational polity, yes, exactly. you know, that means living up to that. Otherwise, and it, it means don't, living don't into the that. messiness of being congregational in polity. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's, there's not, it's not going to be neat. It's not going to be organized, you know, because this at the heart is what it means to be a Baptist for me. 
Well, and, and don't forget, I mean, Jesus argued with his disciples many times about how things are going, you know, and they, <laughs> they would say, Lord, Lord, don't do that. Or, you know, hey, uh, can I can I be at, at the right hand when, when we, you know, get to the kingdom? Or, hey, why are you talking to that person? And Jesus was constantly rebuking and arguing with his followers about how he should do his ministry. And he was Jesus, you know. So <laughs> if we expect that we're going to have a church that's not going to argue and not going to have heated conversations and we're not going to hurt each other's feelings because of ministry, then sorry, you know, that's not realistic. Because even with Jesus and his, you know, his 13-person church, like, there was there was arguments. <laughs> you know? So if, if people felt entitled enough to argue with Jesus, then clearly they're going to argue with the pastor or, or with the search committee or with the, you know, whatever committee. Or with the deacons. Um, but, but in the Baptist church, we get so scared that, you know, there's going to be a vote that's not unanimous. It's going to be split 40-60, and that 40% is going to go off and start a new church. Well, good, go. <laughs> and it's going to break down some of these huge churches we have. I'm not sure that well, that's... Or the smaller ones, especially. I mean, you know, medium-sized smaller churches, you know, 200, yes. 300 people. Yeah, those are going to keep splitting. That's the Baptist way. It's why we have, you know, First Baptist, Second Baptist... Third Baptist on Main Street, Fourth Baptist down the street, and Fifth Baptist on on the you know in the treehouse. But you know that's one of the things that I think Baptist ministers are especially scared of. Oh my gosh, what about a split? Can we survive a split? I don't know, but that is the Baptist way: is that you split off into another group that is that works out this congregational polity. Or you know, if you have strong enough leadership, you don't really split, and you realize, hey. You like Donald Trump, you like Hillary Clinton, but we're still going to be a country. You know, like, you didn't want to change the color of the pew carpet, or you didn't want to allow this homosexual marriage to happen in our church. And I hear you, and that's fine. But this is what we have, have you know, agreed to um, after arguing and then after weighing all the facts. It's what we've agreed to as a congregation. And if you really feel like you can't be a part of the congregation because of that one decision— or because of this decision, or because of a series of decisions, then please, you know, go find that place that you can be a part of. But just realize that church is not cable news, where you can't just get frustrated with the Fox News and flip over to MSNBC, right? Like, that's not what church is supposed to be about. This is not a buffet. And also, you're not probably not going to find a church that agrees with you on everything. You're not. I mean, the grass is always greener. And, you know, you can say, well, that, you know, that church looks more like who we are now and our church has gotten too conservative or too liberal. Maybe. I mean, it's kind of how I feel about the CBF a lot of times. It's like, well, you know, address the damn issue. Like, let's let's figure this out. Put it out in public. We don't need another committee to have a committee to have a committee, you know, turtles all the way down. Like, let's actually sit down and, and be adults and talk to each other and figure out where we need to go now, because there are people alive now who want to be a part of this, maybe or who feel turned off from the CBF because we discriminate against people of a certain sexual orientation, which if you read the Bible, that's stupid as hell in my mind. <laughs> I can't believe that that we excuse that with saying, well, you know, we, we're, we're going to get there, but let's let's hold off because we don't want to upset, you know, First Baptist so-and-so and First Baptist so-and-so because that's where the money comes from. Um, or I, say, I, let's not talk about well, it because is that really the big issue? Let's just focus on missions. Let's just focus on missions. Why do we have to focus on that? You know, and not missions to gay people, though, because, you know, we don't want to contaminate ourselves. Otherwise, we'd have to go take a dunk in the mikvah. Meanwhile, 
you know, members of the LGBT community who are gifted and want to share their gifts and lead and or members of your church that are in the LGBT community, but they can't say it because you know what? They don't want to, you know, rock the boat. They, they don't feel like they can express themselves and be their own, you know, real person. But that's okay with us because we can be our own selves, but we, we're not allowing other people or, you know, we're not allowing couples to worship together. Yes. Yes. We have, um, Someone who's been in a long-standing standing relationship with his partner. Well, do they come to church together? No, they don't ever come to church together. Do you think they might want to come to church together? Do you think perhaps you're part of the reason that they don't come to church together? Yeah. We just don't think about it. We don't think about the implications of waiting on a conversation like this. But, you know, and, and to me, it all goes back to the Bible, Mariana. Because it, <laughs> it does. So if we look at Genesis... We have Genesis 1, where we have the creation story that people like Ken Ham like, where we have, you know, seven days and all that kind of stuff. You know. But then in Genesis 2, we have a completely different creation story, where God is in relation to the creation, and God walks amongst the creation. And there's a different different explanation about how we get things like gender. And God breathes life. God into our life, right? Yeah, and there's this kind of like Adam, which doesn't mean man; it means human, and that thing gets split into male, female, and that's partly due to getting thrown out of the garden because of you know eating from the tree. And it's this idea that even gender itself, in some ways, according to Genesis, and this is the earlier creation story, if you want to go with the source hypothesis, even gender itself. It's something that God recognizes and in part caused, but also says this is something that you all should realize unites you in, in ways that you don't understand. Whereas in Genesis 1, there's a completely different understanding, you know, with all the different components of what gender and, and male-female mean. And that was a later priestly translation if you want to go with the Wellhausen route. But to me, you know, when we talk about arguments— I mean, look at the Gospels, look at Genesis. These foundational stories that we have, there are multiple... Perspectives. Perspectives. Yeah. I mean, there's not one canonical example of Jesus' life that we can look to and say, well, this is what Jesus did on May 31st, 31 AD. Like, we have to piece this together, and there's not a one-size-fits-all model. Whether you're in Genesis and you're talking about the creation story or the two flood stories, or you skip over to, to Samuel and Kings and the Deuteronomistic history and compare that to Chronicles, which has completely different stories for a lot of the kings. And then you get all the way into things like Jeremiah, which has been redacted a number of times, You know whether or not you subscribe to the redaction theorists. Uh, there's so much you know, Von Rod stuff going on in there uh, with Isaiah and, and Hosea and Amos and Jeremiah. And then you get to the New Testament and good Lord, you know, the first four books that talk about Jesus are pretty much at odds with each other a lot of times. And Acts does not align with Paul and Galatians is not uh, kind of easily folded into Acts. And Luke was not a doctor that that accompanied Paul. Like that's all stuff that we've created on top of this to kind of smooth things over and smooth these differences over and say, yeah, it's all one big story and it all makes sense and it all ends with Jesus coming back in, Re- in Revelation. That's not the case. So It's a lot messier than that, but a lot of people don't want messy. 
it's not just messy. It, it's nuanced. It's complex. And that's the wonderful thing about it. You know, like, go read the Bible. Go think about your faith. Go think about your faith compared to other people's faith. Go look at your church compared to other churches. Go think about how your church interacts both internally and externally with the community and realize that it's not about smoothing over the edges. It's about seeing the edges and saying, okay, well, you have an edge there, I have an edge there. That's cool. But how can we work together to make the world a better place or to bring about salvation or, or whatever your end goal is? And to me, that's the message of the Bible, both Old and New Testament or the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament or however you want to say it, Hebrew Bible, Christian Bible. This idea that there are a lot of incongruencies and there are a lot of sharp edges. And it's not about piecing these things together to make a smooth story that flows and that you can put into a chick track and hand out at, at a NASCAR <laughs> race. You know, like this is deeper than that. And this has a lot of implications and let your faith be incongruous. Like it's okay to be, to, to, you know, I, I think about the, yeah, it's a twisted metaphor. You know, you push on one side and the other side kind of bulges out. Like that's what faith is like to me. And there's, it's, it's always changing. Like there's no set in stone way to do this. So when you talk about, the path to salvation or whatever, that's fine. But realize there's a lot of sharp edges and there always will be sharp edges. So figure it out, but work together to figure it out, just like the Gospels do. Yeah, so I was talking to one of my authors recently um, and the author was asking, so why do you say insert comment? You know, why don't you just go in and change the obvious typos that you see in different things like that? I said, no, because this is your creative work and I want you to read my comments on it and I want you to decide do I need to change that do I not need to change that because that's the messiness of revision and that's the messiness of deciding the whole collaboration of the editor and author together and I think we miss that because we want easy answers that are neat and easy to recite and that's not as you've said that's not what I think it means to be in this whole religion thing, being a Baptist and being someone who is called 